Photo Shelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Alan Murabayashi. And I'm Sarah Jacobs. Sarah, I became a maternity photographer uh, this past week after Whoa. one of my pregnant friends asked me to take some photos. I have to say, I've never done that before. <laughs> it was a little stressful. Oh, really? Yeah, well, just because, you know, I, I haven't done maternity shots before. And quite honestly, I haven't taken photos of people in a really, really long time. Yeah. So it was weird to sort of, you know, be directing people. We were we were at the beach in the outdoors and I was using a 70 to 200 or a 50. Oh, so I wasn't very close to her. So there was still, nice. and I had a mask on the whole time. Nice. Uh, but, uh, you know, it came out okay. I was pretty happy with him. That's good. Add it to the resume, Alan. Yeah, there you go. And the funny thing was this this other woman came up to us on the beach and she said, do you have a business card? My friend is pregnant. Oh. She needs a photographer. I was like, lady, I just started this gig. You know? <laughs> but I gave her my uh, my Instagram account, but uh, was never contacted because she probably realized I was not a maternity photographer. Right. But there you go. Working more within the drones <laughs> rather than maternity. Exactly. <laughs> The company Adobe, which makes Photoshop, recently released some news about Adobe Photoshop Elements 2021, which is actually out now. If you don't know, Photoshop Elements is their their cheaper, more inexpensive version of Photoshop uh, that's sort of consumer-focused. Uh, and this new version will allow users to fix the direction that people in your photos are facing or looking at with a few sliders as a part of its new face tilt feature. It is, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty creepy that you can <laughs> change the direction mm -hmm. that your baby is looking for an image. And the Washington Post photo editor, Olivier Laurent asked whether Adobe should be releasing all of these photo manipulation tools. And he says, I think it's time for developers at Adobe to realize that not all ideas are good ideas, especially at a time when there are tools are making it easier for some to manipulate photos and for people to question whether what is shown is real or not. And I've actually seen a number of companies, uh, Luminar being another one that has uh, a very, very simple tool to swap out the sky, to put in a much more dramatic sky recently. Mm. And there's a weird line now. Of course, Olivier works at a journalism publication and the ethics around manipulation are much more stringent than a parent might have or they're just trying to get a good photo of their kid. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, the video showing what he's doing is uh, what, you, what you can do with this baby is freaky. It's I creepy, don't, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty creepy. I totally understand Olivier's uh, concern. Um, maybe they should pull back, but I don't know. I feel like that gets into some really complex ethics there in terms of technology advancement Versus it getting into the wrong people's hands. You know, every year Adobe has these Adobe Max conferences or their developer conferences, and they show off technology that they've been developing back in the lab. And, you know, some of that stuff makes it to prime time. For example, the content-aware fill tool, which a lot of us use in Photoshop when we run out of background space uh, in our photos. Um, and a few years ago, they introduced a... A, a test that they were doing with Adobe Audition, which is their sound editing tool, where they could basically use AI to learn uh, the sound of somebody's voice, Whoa. and then they they synthesize that uh, you know that person's voice. So, for example, using all of the clips that we have in all of the episodes of our podcasts, they could probably realistically simulate our voices, and most people wouldn't be able to tell the difference. 
Oh my God, for how many episodes we've done, you could oh. just shop any word you wanted that I've said and I could be saying literally anything. <laughs> yeah, it's scary. And then I was looking at yeah. a tweet where Adobe, uh, there was some question over whether a, f- uh, a video was doctored. So this reporter sent the clip to an Adobe scientist and the scientist um, using the warp tools in their video uh, suite, Adobe Premiere, synthesized together a video that the reporter couldn't believe was, was fake. Mm. And I, I believe this is around the Trump video that came out when he was at Walter Reed. And they were showing with the warp tool, you could easily create a cut where a cough was taken out and you wouldn't be able to tell from the video that Ooh. an edit was made to the video. Oh, that's creepy. So the, the implications, you know, if you're a parent and we've all done family photos before with a young kid where the kid is just not looking at the camera and it's the most frustrating mm-hmm. thing in the world. Uh, so in those instances, I can see where this would be a really helpful tool, but the potential for abuse is so high, mm-hmm. you know, where you can make like a politician now side-eyeing like a beautiful woman in the audience. And, oh and all of a sudden, you, you know, you run into yes. these real situations, which cause people to question, uh, you know, their belief in a particular leader, changes of vote. Ah, it's scary. Yeah. It definitely is. And is it worth it just so that you can like edit photos of your baby? Like, I don't know. And simultaneously, Adobe released their content authenticity initiative. It was announced in 2019, but their white paper was released in August 2020. And it just talks about the ways that they're trying to thwart image manipulation uh, through the use of technology. So, you know, within the same organization, they're really pushing and pulling at the same time on the ability to manipulate for, quote, good purposes, and then also trying to authenticate when something has been manipulated. It's a really, really confusing time, and technology is moving much faster than we can even discuss the ethics as usual. Photographer Melissa Golden, who's based out of Atlanta, uh, had a tweet that caught my eye. Um, You and I have been talking endlessly about the type of photography that has been coming out this year um, and the restrictions that have been placed uh, on photo shoots because of COVID. And she tweeted, there's a lot to dislike about pandemic times, but here's the thing that's a seemingly petty insult to general injury. Pandemic news portraiture. Window with a reflection or outdoors with foliage. (laughs) The green, so much green. I can see it when I close my eyes at night. She goes on, these typically aren't enviro portraits as the environments aren't being used to convey the actual story. They all run together. The monotony of visual language is an issue because it changes the signal to noise ratio. All noise, no signal. Easy to tune out. This is a time when the news matters more than ever and portraits should be communicating personal stakes are often reduced to something with the gravity of a senior portrait. I thought it was an interesting take. All the photos that we talked about kind of flashed back into my mind, (laughs) you know, I mean, you would mention like the Paris Hilton photos by Ryan Pfluger for the New York Times that we talked about the other week. Very green, very green. So green, so green. The photos of Larry David shot by Jake Michaels for the New York Times in uh, in April. So much window pane. A lot of window pane, yeah. (laughs) Um, Kailani, photograph for Teen Vogue, also so much window pane. I mean, the examples just go on and on. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. You know, I've known Mel- Melissa since she was a student at Eddie Adams' workshop many, many years ago. She's a fabulous photojournalist who's covered all kinds of things. Um, 
and very, very outspoken on things that are going on in the industry. Uh, great Twitter feed to follow. She's underscore Melissa Golden underscore. Uh, and you can find her tweet and all the other things we talk about at our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. The one thing that I wanted to say in response to that was that, you know, a lot of people have moved out of these urban areas like New York City and moved back home, you know, living with their parents or going back to their childhood suburban areas. And the fact mm-hmm. of the matter is a lot of people are living in areas that have a lot more green than we were used to seeing before. <laughs> so... I, you know, when she says it's not a real reflection of the environment, I would push back just a little bit because I do think it is sort of reflective that a lot of people are in these suburban environments with trees and stuff and they're noticing nature. Um, But Mm -hmm. to her point about like the monotony of the image, I think she's pretty spot on. You know, Mm -hmm. I think seven months in, we know enough about protocol around COVID that photographers can be a little bit more inventive, that news publications that want to photograph meaningful portraits should provide budget to photographers to stage safe environmental portraiture. Yeah, I I think we're already moving a little bit away from, you know, these these cliches that we have been seeing and that she mentions in her tweet. I think it'll be a real timestamp on, you know, what it means to have had your portrait taken in 2020 under these conditions, um, you know, between the months of March and about now. One thing I'm glad that it kind of died out quickly was the virtual shoots. I knew you were going to um, say that. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm so glad. We had some really good ones. Pari did an amazing one for GQ, you know, but there were some really bad ones. And I'm very grateful that we're that we're uh, not doing that as much anymore. Well, Pari's shoot was, I mean, he there was a real camera and a real crew there. He was just directing remotely. We saw a lot where people were using camera phones or, you know, pretty low res uh, laptop cameras that, you know, it was cute the first couple of times. And we Mm -hmm. gave props to people for being inventive uh, and creative in the moment. But to your point, I'm over that already. Let's, you know, (laughs) let's get back to, you know, some, some solid photography and just figure out how to shoot environments, you know, if, if, if the windows are open and it has a high ceiling and, you know, the photographer's wearing an N95 and they're sanitizing before they go in, you can do the shoot. Yeah. You can do the it shoot. It seems, the science seems to, to be proving that that is safe. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there, there have been instances, uh, things that we've talked about before. Alex Welsh shot Diplo in his apartment um, with a real <laughs> camera in, you know, in person, uh, very early on in the pandemic, we talked about Justin von Olderhausen's Meet the Neighbors project in New York City, where he was photographing uh, right outside of people's doors in, in his apartment building uh, with a little glimpse into the interior of their apartments, which I thought, you know, there was obviously the, the sameness of the, the entrance to the apartment, but I actually thought those were pretty effective uh, yeah. for that particular concept. I loved those. Yeah. I kind of forgot about them. But yeah, those are fantastic. I love those. So yeah, photographers, be more creative. I think that's the... <laughs> yeah, that's the main message. That's the message, right. And also photo editors support your photographers to be more creative. They need the budgets. Absolutely. They need the budgets. <laughs> 
Uh, I interviewed Gary He. Gary He's a well-known photojournalist, entrepreneur, photographer of many things in New York City. He's a lifelong New Yorker. And for the past several years, he's actually been shooting a lot on the food photography scene. Um, he won a James Beard Award for his coverage of candidates on the campaign trail eating, uh, which I think a lot of people have seen. And the reason why I reached out to him for an interview was actually because he started a newsletter uh, on Substack. And if you don't know what Substack is, it's a platform for primarily journalists to create uh, subscription-based newsletters. And so as a lot of these major publications have gone out of business, a lot of people who have built followings in the past decade went onto Substack, started writing about a particular topic and niche, and then would ask, uh, using a, a patronage system, ask their followers to pay, you know, a dollar a month, five dollars a month, or whatever. I hadn't seen many photographers using this sort of system before, and Gary has been covering Michelin-starred restaurants in New York City during the pandemic for his newsletter called Astrolabe. And it was a pretty interesting interview in terms of him revealing, you know, if COVID had never happened, would you have done the, the, the newsletter? And he says, you know, probably not. This was just, I'm, I'm trying to survive in this environment. And he really talks about being in a niche. Uh, and, mm. you know, in terms of food journalism, Michelin restaurants are the ones that everybody wants to read about. You know, whether you hate, love or hate the Michelin star system, most, most of us foodies still end up uh, reading about that stuff. So he combines really good journalism with a really great photography. And he just got a shout out in uh, a New Yorker piece about the restaurant scene in New York. So good for you, Gary. Yeah, that's awesome. Substack seems, I mean, I, I only know about MailChimp, but not, not Substack. Yeah, MailChimp is more, you know, it's a system for, for dispatching your emails to a list that you maintain. Mm -hmm. Substack, you know, it is a emailing system, but it's, I think it's more, I would consider it more to be along the lines of Patreon. Um, okay. Where you're, you're basically supporting a artist or a journalist with a monthly subscription for them to produce content, you know, in, mm -hmm. in, in an area that they've determined. I'll be interested to see how, how large uh, an audience he can build. But, you know, yeah. if it's five bucks a month, uh, so I bought the annual subscription. It's five bucks a month. So that's $60 a year. If he gets 500 people to sign up for it, which sounds reasonable, that's $30,000 a year for a side gig. That's, hey. that's not bad. Yeah, that, yeah it's that's not bad. not bad. Did you guys talk numbers in terms of his subscription base so far? How, how long has he been doing it? He so he just started about I want to say about a month and a half ago. Um, okay, this is new. Um, he didn't reveal mm -hmm. any numbers to me. Um, it's still obviously very very early days, and all of this uh, additional press is will hopefully help him build a sub subscriber base. But it's really really great content. If you're if you're a, a foodie uh, and you live in New York or you travel to New York to eat in the past, uh, Astrolabe on Substack Gary he. It's a great account to follow. And again, this link you can find at our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. So my entire internet feed today, my Insta stories, my Twitter was flooded with Indigenous Peoples Day, um, which is today, October 12th. Um, so much so that I did not even realize that today is also 
Christopher Columbus Day. <laughs> and so I just want to say shout out to my uh, internet people um, that we it's working. Good job, everybody. <laughs> that that um, we're converting the day over, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but I wanted to actually talk about uh, a white dude's photography. Uh, and All right, that's this cool. Guy, we can do that. <laughs> um, this guy, Edward Curtis, uh, he was born in 1868. He died in 1952. So this is this is real old school. You know how we normally say, you know, you should document um, your own community, people near you. Yeah, Edward Edward didn't do that. I mean, it was of the times. Um, but he had dedicated his entire life to documenting the native people and tribes of North America. And this guy took over 40,000 images and recorded rare ethnographic information from over 80 American Indian tribal groups. Um, he began this massive undertaking in 1890. Um, and when you think about how far back that is and all the logistics that he had to deal with, you know, like this was not just, oh, let's do a Google search and then like get in my Uber to go to the shoot. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> he was he was having to find these tribes, you know, go on horseback, um, spend years and years. Uh, his major goal was to record as much of the people's way of traditional life as possible. And in 1906, he got a $75,000 grant from J.P. Morgan himself to produce the work, which I believe all of that money went straight into the work. Like, Curtis was not living a lavish lifestyle. Like, that does sound like a no. lot of money, but yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, this all went straight towards the work. Um, and he produced the North American Indian. That's the title of the book. And it's a bunch of... In insanely beautiful portraits um, and also reenactments of tribal, their, their foods, their dwelling, uh, clothing, ceremonies, burial customs, um, all that kind of stuff. The, the first thing that struck me was, you know, 40,000 portraits. Imagine just doing that digitally of how much time and effort it would take to set up the shots and then tone all of the shots uh, and then publish the shots. I can't imagine doing that in the 19th century with analog film equipment or the early right. 20th century, you know, where you're, where you're carrying your chemistry with you. And he, you know, he's coming out, he's, he's like predating film, you know, he's like in tin type <laughs> alternative process yes. territory in the 19th right. century and then maybe film in the 20th century. His images mm -hmm. are, are beautiful beautiful portraits. Now they we really talked a couple are. weeks ago about Alex Soth and, you know, being parachuted into a community to document inequity. Um, and his realization that it was, you know, it, it, it wasn't the appropriate thing to do, especially at the time where we're talking about the need for uh, more in-depth reporting. Edward Curtis might've been a white dude, but he was also an ethnologist who mm -hmm. really, really tried to understand the people and places that he was photographing. And if you're going to be a white guy in the 19th century doing this type of work, <laughs> it's probably the way that you want to be doing it. And arguably even in the 21st century, if you want to be doing this type of work, you know, going totally. to different black and brown populations to photograph, like you should be doing the amount of work that he did to, to sort of understand the, the cultures 
Uh, you mentioned 80 different tribes. They were all west of the Mississippi, ranging from the Mexican border up into Alaska. I mean, just really, really amazing work. And as we mentioned work. with some other photography a couple of weeks ago, like you might have, you could think that this stuff was shot yesterday with yeah. the technique and the poses and the lighting. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. One of the more tragic parts to this story is that in 1935, the Morgan estate, the J.P. Morgan estate, sold the rights of the North American Indian and the remaining unpublished material for $1,000. That's crazy. That's it. I know. <laughs> and some of the material remain untouched uh, and in a basement in Boston until they were rediscovered in 1972. I mean, the guy really, I mean, he died like not famous at all, no money to his name because, you know, but but he right. just, this was his life's work. It's all he cared about. It's all he wanted to do. We should also remind you, if you're ever looking for a Native American photographer, the collective and database Natives Photograph exists for your perusal. It is an amazing collection of working photographers, uh, gives you their location, uh, samples of their work, um, like many other uh, databases uh, with different niches of photographers, this is a, a fantastic one. Absolutely. I particularly love Brian Adams' work. I've been following him for quite some time because he's a photo shelter member or was, once was. And so his work is just phenomenal and he's a part of this collective. Well, Sarah, happy Indigenous Day to you. Happy Columbus Day to those who still celebrate it. I mean, <laughs> if the Washington Redskins can become the Washington football team, then you know things can, can change to the benefit of the Indigenous peoples around the country and around the world. Yes. All the links we talked about today you can find on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. Subscribe, leave us a rating, tweet at us at Photoshelter. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Photoshelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. Try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources.